Hello and welcome to Breaking the Glass Slipper. I'm Charlotte Bond. And I'm Lucy Hounsom. This week it's Megan who's away. So after the success of our Labyrinth episode, Lucy and I thought we'd have a bit of fun and take another look at one of our favourite childhood films, The Dark Crystal from 1982. So if you haven't seen this Colt Henson classic, The Dark Crystal tells the story of Jen, the last, or so he believes, Gelfling, who is prophesied to bring about the fall of the evil Skeksis and heal a powerful relic, the Dark Crystal. His story is modelled on the classic Chosen One trope, where a young and inexperienced boy holds the fate of the world in his hands. I think that summarises it nicely, although there's so much more in there, so I think we're, we're going to discuss. But I mean, the question I want to ask first and foremost... You and I watched it when we were a kid in 19... Wow, well, were you even born in 1982, Lucy? <laughs> um, it, yeah, actually, this film is four years. Yeah, this was made four years before I was born. Well, this was made just after I was born. So we pretty much saw it when we were kids. But with all the dark stuff that goes on it, is it actually a children's film? What do you think? Difficult to say because I did see it as a child and uh, and I think it was shown to me you know, by my parents who thought that, yeah, it was probably suitable for children. Um, but it's like, a, you know, when you used to watch the old kind of Captain Planet episodes, I, I oh. do, you know, the original. Yeah. <laughs> the Planeteers. Yeah. I say I wanted to be the, be the blonde Russian girl. <laughs> you know, th- they had episodes in that where I'm, you know, sometimes you ask yourself, well, what, what is for children? Because there was a great episode in that. And this is slightly off topic, but um, there was a great episode where they actually had Hitler there. And he was uh, the, the planeteers had to stop him from going back in time and or going forward in time and stealing the secrets of the atomic bomb. And, and I was like, this is looking back. That is definitely not a for children in air quotes uh, topic um but you know it, what is for children i think it's just one of these um i think we maybe we're a bit more careful these days and kind of sugarcoat things far too much so i mean i don't think the dark crystal even though it has um you know obviously the skexies are quite scary um i don't think it's necessarily for children i think it can be enjoyed by people of all ages you know it covers a very wide um kind of range of topics really well, it's interesting because I'm part of a mum's group and uh, someone was asking the other day if anybody had banned Horrid Henry in their in their household because it produces terrible behaviour in children, apparently. And there are a mixture of people who go, oh, my goodness, yes, we can't have it at all. Um, and people like me who went, well, we kind of enjoy it and don't really take it too seriously. But I had to ban um, Ben and Holly uh, and Peppa Pig as well. Peppa Pig is permanently banned. Ben and Holly, a bit more relaxed because it had such terrible behaviour in it. But I don't think that's the issue with Doc Chris. It's not about, you know, sort of bullying and taking the mick and, you know, having tantrums and not being um, punished for them. I think it's very definitely about fear. Um, And when I was reading up on a a few sort of background quotes and things, and apparently Jim Henson had wanted it to be dark. He wanted to go back to the darkness of the Grimm Brothers original fairy tales, which is obviously something I'm fully in favour of. Um, And he said it was a really healthy way for kids to deal with fear within stories and within fiction. Um, And I I think that's quite right. And I was actually, as I was watching it and sort of feeling bad for all the creatures that get eaten. I mean, the the bit that I remember really having an impact on me when I was a kid was where the Skeksis are eating that huge feast and they bring in those little alive creatures and one of them tries to escape and it kind of gets all the way to the end of the table where it gets caught and eaten. And that had a huge traumatising effect on me as a kid. Mm. Uh, but, then, but then I thought about the recent BBC adaptations of The Gruffalo and The Gruffalo's Child. And for those of you who don't know The Gruffalo, 
it centers around a little mouse who walks through a wood and he meets um, an owl, a fox and a snake. And they all try to eat him. And he goes, oh, no, no, you can't eat me. I'm off to find a gruffalo, which is a big monster. Uh, the monster turns out to be real. And he walks back through when everybody is scared of the gruffalo and leaves him alone. But all the way through in the BBC adaptation in the film, rather than in, you know, the Julia Donaldson books, they have creatures being eaten, like fish being eaten by um, by herons and all sorts of weird and terrible things. Well, but again, I say weird and terrible, but sort of natural. And I sort of go, well, actually, we are kind of coming back round a little bit to that, where you are having the dark side of reality going through. And I think this would be an acceptable children's film for today. Um, I think a lot of people who are mothers now, certainly I look at it and go, I'm not really sure I want my daughter to watch this. But at the same time, I kind of go, but I did. And it taught me a load of valuable lessons. Um, I think there's a, you know, there's an awful lot in there. Yeah, I thought when you said that the the bit that you were kind of thinking back on, I thought you were going to say the the part with the Gartham come and uh, break up the podling party and take uh, some more podling slaves. And the thing that that really got me, uh, we, I know both of us rewatched this last night. The thing that got me this time um, was Jen is clearly distraught that um this has happened he thinks that he it's his fault that the gartham has come and have come and taken the bodlings away and kira says quite matter-of-factly with a kind of like long-suffering expression that the the gartham have always come the podlings have always been taken as slaves this is the way the world works and the way she says that with such world weariness um is is very adult in tone it is. And, you know, again, it's this whole idea about sort of seeing that and, and dealing with fear and seeing one way of dealing with it. Um, but I don't know if that's necessarily a good thing for children to see this kind of resignation in the face of fear and terror is a good thing to say, oh, it just always happens. But then I suppose I'm always trying to tell my daughter, I'm sorry, life is unfair. You can't have this thing or you can't be picked for that role in the school play because that's just the way that life goes. So maybe it is teaching a valuable if brutal lesson mm -hmm. and i actually think it's quite refreshing that it's not sugar-coated everything you know that the world is dark and and actually as we'll get on to a bit later that the the world state of the dark crystal is a very binary one that we have seen that the the history of the world has been split into kind of creating polar opposites you know, with, we have good and evil, and and so a lot of the a lot of the kind of the action that takes place is it takes place in a world where things are out of balance. They're not uh, they're out of kilter. They're not quite right. They're um, a bit messed up. Almost I feel almost like where we are now in a strange way. Um, and and that's and and the journey of Jen and Kira both, you know, is to kind of restore the balance and to stop these things from happening. You talk about polar opposites, and you're quite right. There's Jen and Kira as we're going on to, and the Skeksis and the Mystics, and Augur in the middle. But I tell you, the one that always got me, and always, and got me yesterday when I rewatched it, was the poor podlings who don't seem to have any role except to either be joyful or to suffer. And I rewatched the bit where they focus the uh, dark crystal beam into the eyes of the podling. and it just its face sinks and its eyes go white. And I looked at it, and as an adult, and I went. That's body horror. That's like a kid's version of the fly, really, isn't it? Um, it was just just really dark. Um, and I couldn't really think of any justification in that 
um you know with sort of kira and jen their suffering is for a reason it's build them up and things like that but i just felt the poor podlings just got a really rough end of the deal and they were just caught in the middle they had no polar opposites they were just there to suffer poor things well um we ought to be as you've pointed out extremely happy and drunk which is the other thing that struck me last <laughs> it's like why are they drunk they, like they, there was there was one in a pot of like ale or you know definitely that was definitely alcoholic um <laughs> and i was thinking they live in but it's interesting that you said that because the podlings also live in polar extremes you know like they either at the abject end of suffering as slaves with no free will or they're in a kind of like drunken ecstasy <laughs> so it's a it, fair point <laughs> it's very interesting but i remember that bit where the the eyes going white and the essence being sucked out uh, that i think looking back terrified me the most as a child i think it was the idea of the essence of you what makes you you being sucked away to kind of like keep these withered evil creatures alive that's the part that i think really got me as a child absolutely now this film was made in the 80s so how does it hold up on rewatching? i mean the advantage of fantasy is that it can avoid looking as dated as films like say the terminator or the lost boys but at the time this film was made, it was hailed as the only live action film in which a human character makes no appearance at all. So with all this puppetry, does that really stop it from feeling dated? Well, I, I really I think it really does. Um, at one point, um, I was entertaining writing an article about this, about, you know, the the enduring appeal of the Dark Crystal. Um, and I think one of the reasons it does stand out is because it uses puppetry instead of CGI. And with a lot of fantasy films, we've come to expect the presence of CGI. I mean, even something as great as the Lord of the Rings films, um, they couldn't work without some CGI. Um, and, and fantasy, by its very nature, you know, there's a lot of magic involved. There are lots of dramatic landscapes, battles, definitely um, situations which are very difficult to film without kind of some kind of um, manipulation. Every time I watch and rewatch The Dark Crystal, I really feel like there's an immediacy to it. There's a realness that goes beyond uh, a kind of, you know, a normal a normal film. I think it's the fact that it is there's a live action element and it's it's the whole thing is puppets and it, you kind of it's funny because as a child I didn't really think about the puppets. I just thought that they were people. I thought that they were, you know, I suppose children don't really think about it like that. But I mean, still as an adult, I really feel like it's um it stands out from a lot of other fantasy films, especially in the 80s, because I think in the 80s they were just beginning to kind of get onto the whole CGI bandwagon and seeing quite, you know, the those early effects, you know, what it could do. So maybe it stops it in a way from feeling dated because some of those old CGI are now, you know, God, eye-rollingly awful. <laughs> Well, exactly. And I mean, I always say that the best CGI is the type that you don't know it's there and you can't spot it. Um, but... I fully agree with you that sort of the pu the puppets in particular really give a solidity to it that you don't necessarily get if you've got a blue screen and, you know, just interacting with something that you imagine is there. But when I was watching it or rewatching it, I noticed, particularly in the Skeksis, the body language was amazing. And there's that bit at the beginning where the emperor has just died and the Skeksis are all vying about, you know, who's going to be the next emperor. And if you watch them, they, so the, the ones who were going for it, you know, well, there's one who's, um, 
eventually becomes emperor and he's all upright and and you know he's got very expansive arm gestures and things and then you've got the um the chamberlain who's going and wandering around with his head down and his body language is very different and they circle around one another and if they bump into each other there's always one that backs off and i just thought that's that's so amazing that's beyond facial expressions i mean facial expressions are amazing um and i really love the mystics as well i thought they were they were very good but I must admit, watching it again, the one bit I did struggle with um, were the Gelflings, uh, partly because there's such a difference when you see the actors, you know, in the, the wide shots where the, the actors are running or climbing waterfalls or whatever. And then you see a close up of Kira or Jen and they, their faces don't move very much. Um, and I recently watched um, the trailer for A Lesson Learned. Did you hear about that? Uh no. A Lesson Learned was a, a short film. I can't find it anywhere. I think it premiered at um, a film festival. But it was done by um, Toby Froud, Brian's son, who incidentally is the baby in Labyrinth. Um, and it sort of has the same kind of creatures. And if you watch just this sort of two-minute trailer, you can see how much more advanced the um, puppetry is and how, mu- how much better the facial features are and the face moves. So when we talk, you know, obviously our lips are involved and our cheeks and our eyes and things like that. If you watch... Um, the Gelflings, just their lips move and none of the rest of the face really moves at all. But that aside, it is just it's just brilliant. And I think that what really makes this film stand out is you talk about uh, the Lord of Rings wouldn't you know, be able to make that CGI, which concentrates on huge battle scenes and things like that. But the charm of this and of Henson in general is always the little incidentals. It's all the little creatures that they walk past who are in the swamp, who run away who hide in caves things like that if you think about the muppets um the muppet treasure island another favorite of my films uh which we could never discuss in there because i don't think there were any women in it (laughs) oh no there's jennifer saunders but when they they have the opening scene and they sort of have that big sort of sweeping shot where they they come in to to find them digging in for the treasure you have all sorts of little creatures here there and everywhere just tiny little creatures that never turn up ever again and it's the same thing with the dark crystal. You kind of see all these little creatures. And again, you have it in Labyrinth and not even speaking parts like the little worm in Labyrinth, just random creatures that are just there and run across the screen. And it's just so fantastic. Yeah, you're right. It's definitely what lends the film uh, that, that kind of richness of mm. setting. I think that's really what um, I totally agree with you about the Gelflings. Um, uh, the, the, that part that the wooden face aspect does kind of jar a little bit. Um, but I was marveling at the environments created and, and they're yeah. only for Jen to pass through. They're only to give a sense of the epic, to, to give a sense of the diversity of the world. And yet the detail that has gone into them is... The best part of that is, of course, the nebri that uh, Kira calls up to help Jen, and they have a most excellent juxtaposition of fade into <laughs> the, oh, roast mess, the roast version of it that's on the Skeksis dinner table. <laughs> I know, and it's just so full of dark humour. I was listing it, um, all the, the dark humour that's in it, that I think, again, does make it accessible for children as well as adults. You've got this really sort of dark... Um, brutal world but it has elements of humor and even the skexies for example in that same you talk about the the wonderful fade from you know <laughs> the live creature to the dead creature <laughs> served up on a tray um and you've got that terrible bit as i was saying earlier where the little creature tries to escape and then gets eaten but then you have um i forget i think it's the emperor skexies who um puts his face in a, a bowl full of food and blows bubbles and eats up and, and whatever lifts his head up up, shakes it like a dog and then a little slave comes up and he dabs the corners of his mouth with a napkin and stuff like that that you know really 
just makes it fantastic. Um, and I have to mention the bit that I absolutely adored. And, you know, speaking as a mother, I love the little bit where Kira gets on the land striders and Fizzgig is there. And she goes, no, no, Fizzgig, you stay there. And basically this puppet who is pretty much fur and a mouth throws his head back and screams and his little paws at the front go, ta 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 And he just sits there and has this major toddler tantrum. And I'm like, everybody can, you know, whether you're a kid and you, you sort of empathise with it or you're a parent and you go, oh, God, that's so my child. Um, and we were talking earlier about looking very dated. Another film of around the same time that I used to love when I was a kid was called Krull. Um, and I loved it and I so wanted to be Lisette Anthony and, you know, be the, the princess and everything. I look at it now and I go, oh, it's baby Liam Neeson. Oh, it's baby Todd Carty. Oh, look, it's baby Robbie Coltrane. Oh, it's baby Lisa. And it's everybody is so young. And you just, you can't help feeling that irrelevant of it being dated with special effects, you just know that those are young people and you know what they look like now. It's like seeing something in the past. Whereas you watch something like The Dark Crystal and it doesn't have any data at all. It could be now, it could be in the past. It's just it's just eternal. There is nothing to date it. There's no bad hairstyles, although I suppose they're still quite 80s hairstyles for the Gelflings. But, but yeah, I mean, the only bad thing I have about it um, and really shows its age, I thought, was in um, the narration and the exposition. Um, I mean, the first sort of, what, opening 20 minutes is basically the narrator telling you the story and then a lot of internalised um, dialogue, uh, monologue from uh, Jen as he's wandering around like who is Orgro is she going to help me is she going to eat me and I was like if that film was made today that would never stand up with audiences you'd have people like um, Dr Mark Kermode going no that's that's just terrible it's, re- it's really poor filmmaking and terrible script writing but it's of its time and it was at a time when they were focusing more on the special effects perhaps than the writing so it is kind of forgivable uh, and the only other thing that I thought was quite quite bad for a film and made me kind of cringe was the idea of the wings when she uh, when Kira jumps off and has these wings and it's just like oh my goodness yeah so these wings that we never knew existed now suddenly save them in a moment uh, of triumph no 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 I'm oh, totally no, no, no. let me let me finish I was gonna say so I would say that was a, a deus ex machina kind of moment but although it is really really bad plotting I would say it is filled it is brought off by the most wonderful <laughs> final line of you've got wings I haven't got wings like of course not. You're a boy and just walks off. So I kind of forgive that little that little bit because it has such a wonderful final line of like, yeah, I'm a girl. So what? Deal with it. And I just think that's wonderful. No, it works because, hear me out, because Jen thought he was the last Gelfling. And who was there to tell him about the female Gelflings, because there were no female Gelflings. He has never seen another Gelfling. And, you know, and for, and for Kira, she's not seen another male Gelfling. So in a way, it's like, you know, I suppose the only thing you could say is, oh, she remembers that her little brother, if she had one, didn't have wings. But Jen is like, no, has no idea that this even existed. He didn't even know that a female existed. So I feel like it's not, you know, a, a, a little plot thing i think it was it's a planned thing and i think it totally works because that line is probably the most charming line of the entire film it is it is an awesome line i just kind of feel like it was revealed in a moment of drama when it perhaps should have been you know at least mentioned a little bit earlier it could have been that part of the the conversation could have happened at any point i mean you know they've been drinking and dancing and sleeping to get not literally sleeping together i mean they fall asleep curled up together all before that and you know at any point how did he not notice she had 
you know, huge great wings under her cloak. But like I say, it is forgiven for the, the wonderful throwaway comment that it, it makes. Well, I think we're edging towards um, a discussion of fantasy stereotypes, which absolutely totally uh, appropriate for this film. Um, yeah, I think it's very interesting that, um, as you, you know, you, we were talking about it, you know, is you say that, you know, it's an old film. How to what extent can we forgive some of the more kind of, you know, eye watering fantasy tropes that, that you characterize it? Um, and I think that, yeah, to to a certain extent, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty lenient when it comes to fantasy tropes. Uh, I know you despise The Chosen One, so I'm quite shocked that you like this film as much as you do. <laughs> but that's the thing. It's because it's the first ever Chosen One film that I saw. Therefore, it is my first experience and it is acceptable. It's the 20,000 others that I've read since then that are all the, the copies. But because The Dark Crystal was one of the first, then that's fine because it... You didn't have that many fantasy films in that time. Um, I mean, I suppose you had Star Wars and things like that, but it was fine because it was brand new and, you know, that was it. And in a weird way, I almost don't mind the Chosen One trope here because the film isn't about, yes, it has a Chosen One, but it isn't necessarily about the Chosen One. There's so much more depth to it, like the the duality we're going to talk about later on. And to be honest, just like you say, the world, the amazing special effects and the puppets and all the little creatures, they're as much the story, part of the story as the chosen one. It's not just fixated on this one trope. Um, I mean, what, no, sorry, carry on. I was just going to ask what other tropes we uh, we spotted while we were watching it. Well, I just wanted to talk about the chosen one for a second um, and mm. just the difference between uh, how we view the chosen one trope after 30, 40 years of seeing it in fantasy. Um, you know, and I was watching, obviously watching it back last night and kind of cringing internally when the narrator was like, at this point, Jen is the chosen one. <laughs> And I was like, oh, my God, you know, the the kind of stories we tell today, if you want to get a chosen one in there, you never use the words chosen one. And you certainly don't point it out at the very beginning of the story. It's it's something that has to become a kind of apparent to the reader. And very often the chosen one himself or herself uh, fights against the, the knowledge that they are or, you know, the truth that they are the chosen one. Um, so I thought that that was quite interesting that they present it so boldly right at the start um you know because it's so that just would not happen today so it shows its age by simply um being completely unembarrassed about saying that jen is a chosen one and kind of almost stripping him of all agency before the story begins <laughs> and in relation to that there was there was the bit where where the old master is dying and he goes I should have told you all of this before. And we're like, yes, you really should have done. What is the point of waiting until you die before you tell him this? I thought and, that too. <laughs> and you wouldn't get away with something like that in a modern day film. But that's because it's been done so often. You just go, no, that's not acceptable. I expect more from my modern audiences. But in something that was made in, what was it, 1982, that's fine. That's totally cool. That's totally cool, yeah. No, I um, I really like the fact that you pointed out the mentor trope which we see an awful lot in fantasy the kind of gandalf figure the the um alanon you know the oh my god you could just keep going there's just so many of these these wise um usually gray bearded figures that appear ben kenobi story. i always think ben kenobi when you say mentor every time he is he is my prototypical mentor ben kenobi but what's so interesting about the dark crystal is that jen's so-called mentor pegs it at the very beginning uh, without telling him anything very important <laughs> and uh, and jen is left to 
basically find himself a new mentor who you could arguably say is Augra, who we don't really know very much about Augra, like especially what she is. Um, but she interestingly predates pretty much the entire story, like conception of the story. She predates the Great Conjunction, um, which is the, the, the event, the solar event that brought about the whole world state. And of course, I thought she provided a really interesting contrast to Jen's mystic mentor because he was, you know, delivering all this information in riddles and she is so blunt and she's like <laughs> very honest about what she does and what she doesn't know and tells Jen up front that, yeah, okay, so you want a shard, here's a shard. And that that is is a really refreshing um approach to kind of presenting the mentor figure. Like he you know, it's not someone who is gonna watch over the, the hero every hour. It's not someone who's going to treat them, you know, in a in a kind of wrap them in, in cotton wool and kind of like protect them from the ravages of the world she really doesn't give a shit actually <laughs> and you do wonder that you do wonder whether she has the kind of attitude that you know does she really care whether the world is doomed or whether it's saved she's been around for so long she has a, a very fatalistic kind of attitude and to the whole proceedings well she does there's that wonderful bit where she's sort of saying oh yes if this happens it will be end of world and she kind of shrugs and then she goes end of augura and Aubra. then shrugs as well <laughs> it's like it just happens um, but yeah i mean it's interesting you talk about mentors um traditional mentors thinking of joseph campbell's hero journey um i'm a bit hazy on the exact details but i do know that the whole point is that the um the chosen one is sent out of his his normal place of living by usually the death of parents or something and in this case it's jen being sent by the death of his his mystic father and then they come across a mentor which sort of challenges their ideas and things like that and i don't think joseph campbell ever probably imagined a mentor like Olga. i mean she she's just she's just amazing and i like the little bit right at the very beginning that sets her up where she goes um when Jen talks about, you know, I've come from my master, the mystic, and he and she goes, is he here? And Jen goes, no, he's dead. And she sniffs and goes, could be anywhere then. <laughs> that is one of the best lines. I know. And it, it was just this idea that clearly from the very beginning, these mystics have been set up. They are the good guys. They are very definitely the complete opposite of the very evil Skeksis. And even Augur is sitting there going, yeah, I don't trust him. Could be anywhere, sneaky little bugger. Um, and it's that wonderful kind of grey area and i just want to come back to what you said earlier about when she goes oh i've got a shard i don't know which one it is that's kind of up to you but if you, i listen to it actually and what she does is she says um he goes which one is it and she goes don't know and then she sits down and goes don't know and i looked at it and i went actually that could either be i don't know or it could be an exasperated you don't know you have to find it out i often wondered if she actually meant you know, the, the second one, you know, you don't know. I can't believe that I've got a chosen one who doesn't know which the shard is. And then when he finds out, because her response is kind of like, ah, there you go. You've done it. And it almost as if she knew and she was kind of waiting for him to catch up. I always wondered about that. And again, it's that whole wonderful grey area. Um, I mean, I think we need to devote a bit more time to talk about Augur beyond her mentor role, because she then turns up later on, <laughs> captured by the Gartham in front of the Skeksis. And she's she's basically like, screw you guys. You got the wrong person. Yeah utterly fearless she is and if you think about um joseph campbell's hero's journey um and perhaps ben kenobi and things like that then the mentor kind of fades into the background and doesn't really have much of a role beyond being the mentor but augra goes off and kicks ass and also later on kind of mentors um uh, kira when kira is caught in the crystal's beam and she encourages her to 
um, speak to the animals. And it's kind of like she's mentor to both of them. Uh, and I just think that's, that's such a nice, uh, such a nice idea. And you had a really good idea that has she been caught just so that she can watch? Mm-hmm. I did suspect in a way when you see her in the cage, you think, Mm, how much of this? I mean, if she is, um, if she is clever and resourceful enough to build that fantastic observatory, then she is surely resourceful enough not to be captured by something like the Gotham and the Skeksis. And, and the way that she puts her eye out to observe everything that's going on, that she pops out of her head and then can e- easily kind of call it back at any moment. It does seem to me like she's sitting back and enjoying the show. But it is that, um, the, the scientist part of her is what what i love as well that she is clearly a being of you know intense um curiosity about the world like she's a scholar she's built this oh my god when you when jen first sees the the observatory that is her home and all these moving planets and and she says this wonderful thing she says she calls it the angle of eternity It was so wonderful, this idea that this crazy old woman lives alone in an observatory that she's built with her own bare hands and uses it to make kind of um, you know predictions about the nature of the world and, and the future. It's uh, She really is something else. Yeah, I mean, she's absolutely amazing. And you talk about the eye that she leaves, you know, leaves out. And again, coming back to the grey areas of how much in control is she? Um, you, she's got her when she's in the cage, her eyes on the table. And there's a little part of me that goes, did she kind of put it there, you know, kind of throw it so that she could watch what was going on in a wider remit than what's totally. in her cage? Yeah. Or did they kind of take it away from her and put it on the side? It's it's just, yeah, she is. She's not proactive because she doesn't really do anything, but she's the most enabling character because she helps those in need just at the right time. And of course, she does the wonderful thing of saving poor little fizz gig who's, who's out there. And she doesn't even, you know, bother like why you're there. Just, oh, for goodness sake, what are you doing? Come on. <laughs> and then takes him to watch the end of the world. Or the beginning. Oh, all the beginning. Yes. Depending on how you look at it. the end of the film, then I suppose. Uh, yeah. And it strikes me that, um, you know, we've, we've obviously been talking about her quite a bit. And it, that is because she actually displays a lot more personality than Jen does. Um, you know, who's supposed to be the hero of the film. I think Jen, out of all the characters, is probably the least memorable uh, in terms of personality. Um, and, and, you know, he really only comes into his own right at the very end of the film and he's had Olga and Kira to carry him there. Um, and that's the thing that really kind of struck this quite, I think it's, it struck me before and it struck me again um, last night when I was watching it, um, that, the, you know, that these supporting characters tend to be more fleshed out than the, the so-called chosen one. Well, in that case, let's talk about Jen and Kira um, and who the real hero is, because it kind of feels like Jen, um, but it also kind of feels like it's Kira. But then when I was looking back at it and thinking about the duality of the whole thing, whether actually the whole point is that they work as a team. I mean, you look at the two of them and the one thing talking again about tropes, the one thing that really struck me is um, when they have the hand fasting. Sorry, not hand fasting, dream <laughs> dream fasting. Sorry, hand fasting is a wedding. Uh, the dream fasting where they, they hold hands and they exchange dreams and you get this wonderful dump of exposition in a <laughs> really terrible way. But you have It's a beautiful way. It, it <laughs> it's beautiful and they see each other's childhoods and it's nice and i really love that bit you like it's that bit yeah it's beautiful sort of immediate emotions aside but you've got this whole sort of comparison and they sort of talk over one another but you see jen being raised in what i would call a typically masculine role so 
if you go back to the history of you know most western civilizations the guys always went to school they learned their math they learned um reading they learned um all these kind of what you would call sort of scholarly things and you see that jen has been raised up to be a scholar um on the other hand you see kira has been taught languages um and you also see there's a little bit we see her knitting i think at one point or at least you know dealing with wool and things like that um and i thought that was very stereotypical that you had uh, jen having a very masculine upbringing and kira having a very female intuitive kind of upbringing but then we talk about later on kira it's actually kira who does all of the fighting so you said she brings down the crystal bat and um she rushes in on the land uh land striders later on to save the little pod people who've been captured and you know it's always her who's doing the fighting like you say and and jen is kind of taking a back seat it's almost like despite their upbringings um which you would see in a traditional fantasy novel as soon as they meet they're the opposite way around and it's kira who is the warrior and Jen, who is the thoughtful, scholarly, hangs-back passive type. But that's not really surprising in a way, because he's been raised by the mystics. I mean, can you imagine less warrior types than them? <laughs> yes, I can imagine the pod people who are less warrior than the mystics. No, no, no. no. The, well, no, I think the pods are more warrior-ish because they actually live in the real world. The mystics are literally, they just do not fight ever, like because it doesn't even come into their um, frame of of reference that violence is just not a, a mystic thing and i think maybe that the reason why kira displays a lot more um i what is the word you know inst- she instigates more of the action she takes charge um she kills the crystal bat she calls the land striders um she tells him she tells jen a lot about what the skexies can and can't see in the wild um and i wonder is because actually sh- her upbringing you know she was she remembers her her parents and her family she remembers being torn away from them and she's lived in a podland community which has been regularly raided by Carthim all the way through her young life so she's actually seen a lot more of the world and its evil than jen has and so is therefore better equipped to deal with the kind of practicalities of a journey across the world and that's a very fair point i mean thinking about it from that point of view if you go to the end of the film where the mystics are approaching um, the Crystal Palace, the Gartham suddenly come in front of them and they all just sit there and raise their voices and the Gartham shift to one side. So I guess you could be right in that Jen has never encountered it because although the mystics are peaceful, they can enforce that peace with power. So they are powerful. So he's grown up in a very powerful kind of way where he is allowed to you know, be safe. Whereas, like you say, with the podlings, they are out there in the real world. They're the victims. They're always the ones that get picked on because they have no power. So Kira is forced to become more proactive, more warrior-like because she lives in a victim society, whereas Jen, despite them being passive, is still protected and is still part of the winner's society, I suppose, rather than the victims. So it is an interesting idea. I think I love your idea about the way that they're supposed to work as a team, because I think, as we've just demonstrated, they both have very different skill sets. Um, but both of those sets are needed equally in order to triumph and, and you know, uh, beat the darkness. And particularly the scene where they go to the Gelfling ruins um, and Kira can't read because she's not been raised in that way. But Jen can. And it's this one point in the film where he is very good at displaying his knowledge of reading. And it really helps because actually, even though it's Kira who says, 
oh my god this is a piece of the dark crystal and you're going to have to heal the crystal if mm. they if jen hadn't read that prophecy off the wall then they possibly would be none the wiser so you know jen has the knowledge of, of reading and kira has the ability to apply that knowledge practically therefore they work very very well as a team and i think that Kira and her role in the film is really to kind of get Jen to where he needs to be in order to fulfill the prophecy. Now, I want to just go back a little bit. Um, we were talking about tropes earlier, and in the show notes that we've got down, um, you noticed that Kira is the one who makes the sacrifice at the end, um, and you described it as a trope that's become distressingly popular over the years. And I was thinking about it, and I was wondering if it went beyond the trope somewhat. Um, because if you think about what happens, you've got Jen and Kira both standing on very Indiana Jonesy kind of um, platforms looking down on what's happening below. And Kira launches herself into the into the middle of it to try and pick up the um, to pick up the dark crystal. And I was thinking that's almost reflects what happens when she's with the Landstriders and she charges ahead to go and um, rescue the pod people, which, as you pointed out, you know, results in the death of the Landstriders and also pretty much has the pod people being recaptured because they don't actually save them and they get backed off the edge by the Garthim. And I did wonder if there was a kind of little subplot with Kira here. And yes, she she ended up being sacrificed. But she kind of had to do that to make up for the fact that she charged in recklessly before and caused the death of the Landstriders and the death of the pod people. And she can only really reach redemption if she charges in and gives up her own life in an effort to try and save everybody else. Because the last time she charged in recklessly, it didn't end very well for anybody else. Whereas now she's like she's almost rectifying the mistakes she made previously. I mean, do you think I'm reading too much into it or do you think that might be an element that, you know, is incorporated into the film? Well, I don't want to say that it wasn't, because I quite like it, uh, because of the, the hot-headed charging in, getting the Landstriders killed, really stuck with me, because I thought they were really cool, and she's clearly really nice to them, and they are really nice to her. And she's like, they'll take us, they'll take us. And then she's like, you know, these Landstriders did not agree to give up their lives for you. They just agreed to take you to the castle. So... You know, that part really stuck with me, the fact that she was so hot-headed. And then, of course, the podlings are not going to, even though the cage is open, they're not going to have the wherewithal to get away in the middle of a bloody wasteland, are they? So, you know, the whole that whole situation, it was ridiculous. And it's the one bit apart one part of her character that really really annoyed me because it was just a bad decision. So I like the idea, in a way, that... Um, she that the sacrifice being stabbed made up for that i'm not convinced they they had that in mind but then who knows you know because a lot of this time with storytelling um things kind of bubble away beneath the surface and influence choices down the road and you don't realize quite how that's happening because it tends to be on a subconscious level so maybe kira's sacrifice is in some way um payment for for her foolishness earlier like a life for a life Absolutely. Now, we've been quite bad at foreshadowing our own episode and talking about duality. So I think it's definitely time to move on um, and talk about the message at the end of the film, because um, if you haven't watched The Dark Crystal, go away and watch it now, because this is a ter terrible, terrible spoiler. But the mystics all turn up in the crystal chamber. Um, they stand in the, in the beam of the, the crystal from the three suns and they capture the Skeksis and the Skeksis um, merge back into the mystics to become one huge powerful being of light um, so it's basically really really evil really really nice warm fuzzy mystical creatures 
are all part of one being. I wondered if you don't find it just a little bit worrying that there are these extremely powerful creatures that are pretty much half evil Skeksis in them. So my answer to this is that it's pure Jungian psychology, that the Skeksis represent the shadow self that exists within each of us, very much in the way that uh, Jed summoned up the um, the dark creature in A Wizard of Earthsea, and that dark creature uh, ends up bearing his own name, and that's how he vanquishes it, because he names, he names it as himself and incorporates it back into himself, because we are dual-natured. Um, you know, the shadow self is a very important and intrinsic part of us. So it's very interesting that the film is saying that the polar opposites that we see so readily in fantasy, this whole black, white, good, evil, right, wrong business, it's saying that they don't work, that the world is damaged by this binary division and that there has to be a reckoning because of that. You know, as the narrator says, if Jen doesn't heal the crystal, the world will will fall to evil. Evil will rule forever, um, which is obviously, you know, it's a it's a simple oversimplification. But it's, in essence, he's saying that the, the world is is not it's going to be broken forever and it's going to be out of kilter forever. Um, so the whole idea of them being I, I really love the, the, the this duality thing that the fact that that the the beings themselves kind of caused this. They say at the end that it's their arrogance that causes the the crystal to crack and and them to and to shatter the two sides of their natures into extremes um you know and and so it's kind of saying that really the only way we can move forward is by embracing our two natures you know that we are all the mystics and we are also the skexies but we're not one without the other one of the things i found really interesting and i kind of come back to this idea you said a little while ago about um who knows what is bubbling away in the minds of the storytellers but at an even more deeper level than this i thought it was really powerful images at the beginning of the way the chief mystic and the emperor of the skeksis dies because when the mystic dies it does the yoda thing where the blanket is there and the blanket slowly falls and there's lots of twinkly lights and it just goes into nothing and it's very peaceful and very spiritual Whereas if you watch what happens to the Skeksis, you have the same thing of the blankets falling, but that's because the whole body disintegrates and turns to ash and dust and bone it's, parts. Yeah, it's just really grim and it's very wonderful. I love that bit and I love the it's something my dad really enjoys. He loves this film and he thinks the juxtaposition between those two deaths is really quite marvellous. The fact that the mystic is so beautiful, like it just sprinkles into stardust and it's lovely and it's like how you everyone would imagine them passing you know there's no there's no rotting body to deal with there's no it takes the morbidity out of death entirely and and then you've got the the polar extreme which is the 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 old "Ah, i am still emperor guy who like crumbles to dust and in a really quite distressing and horrible way well exactly and i kind of wondered if it was more almost religious kind of an idea that you've the goodness of you is the bit that goes on and the evil bit is the bit that is trapped within the bones and the dust and all the ickiness and things and whether that was sort of yet another level of kind of displaying this duality not just the all one one thing but when you get down to it the evilness of of us is the bit that decays and goes 
back into the ground and is just left behind in dust and dirt. And it's actually the wonderful goodness of us that is the bit that goes all sparkly and twinkly lights and things like that. But again, yeah, that might be reading way too much into to what they were doing. No, I completely agree with you. No, I think that's that is what they were doing. I'm pretty sure about this because they're so different and so distinct. And and I think they are the you know the the extremes of our own ending you know because we do you know we do rot away obviously if we're put in the ground um you know and so maybe the 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 kind of the skexy emperor dying is it symbolizes the decomposition of the body whereas the the mystics kind of sparkly passing is more to do with kind of the, the essence of ourselves as it fades from the world so yeah, I think that it, it's the whole, the way that they, I thought they were quite clever to show these two death scenes kind of back to back to kind of show how how they're so very, very different. And yet, you know, when you know that the end of the film, you realise that the mystics and the Skeksis are really one being, that's really, it's very clever how it's kind of highlighted the dual aspects of their nature, and but in a very materialistic, very obvious way. You know, one is very beautiful and the other one is very horrible. I have to admit that at the end bit when they they combine and they have this great speech and then my notes just say and then they just piss off because they pretty much go we have healed the crystal we have learned from our mistakes up to you now bye and then they just go and it's probably the best (laughs) it reminds me of the bit with um indiana jones and the uh, the kingdom of the crystal skull where they they have this sort of ending and they all disappear off uh obviously they had to throw in a few extra bits of action because it's indiana jones and it was a terrible film anyway but I just I just thought it was just so wonderful that there was there was no drama to it. It's like, yep, we're off. Bye. Off you go. <laughs> just gone. Um, um, did you also think that they were fucking creepy? I thought it was weird that on my on my really high resolution TV that I have now compared to the tiny little box that I had in the 80s that, you know, you played a VHS on and it was all crackly and whatever. You would actually see what these beings of light were and you could see that they were almost um tree beard-esque you know with the sort of pointy heads and and whatever but their lips didn't move and they're kind of hidden behind these Sherlock Holmes style collars that they have you know I was thinking Sherlock Holmes in the Benedict Cumberbatch one where he turns up the collar of of his coat they're almost hidden behind these high collar coat things and their lips don't move and I was just like they're really freaky you kind of expect them to be a an amalgamation of the two types of of creatures so uh, i love brian froud's um designs and drawings and everything and i was doing a bit of research into the background of it and you know that the mystics have four arms um if you see them at the beginning when they're all sort of doing their little rituals um this was actually to prevent um copyright issues because they were based on a previous design that froud had had in previous book but jim henson wanted all the rights to it so um froud kind of did something similar but then added in a couple of extra arms just so it was slightly different that's really interesting but apparently the skexies also have forearms but their secondary arms are really tiny and against their body and although i didn't notice it because i read all this afterwards with the bit when the chamberlain is completely reduced of his clothes he's actually got two tiny little arms underneath his um his big ones i didn't even notice that yeah so it's kind of a case of the mystics, when I looked at it, they were very smooth. There was lots of circles. There was lots of um, there were no hard lines or anything like that. Whereas the Skeksis were all about, you know, the the spines and the, the pointed nose and things. And I kind of expected to see elements of both of them within the final beings. And yet they look nothing like the previous ones. And I kind of went, how could you 
labor over two completely different beings and then not think how they would look when they come together although maybe that's the point maybe you look nothing like your good or your bad side but i just kind of felt that they'd missed an opportunity there to kind of incorporate the elements of both of them to make something incredibly beautiful and mysterious and ethereal that you wouldn't have guessed just looking at one or the other uh but maybe they're not supposed to be mysterious and beautiful and well maybe mysterious but maybe not beautiful and ethereal because they are after all part skexy so yeah i thought the creepy aspect was good because <laughs> i thought it picked up on the fact that these are also the skexies they're just you know an, they're just amalgamated now into the mystics and and of course you know, like the mystics uh, yeah I, I do get your i do get your point about kind of making them slightly more recognizable um you know but then i suppose you could just argue that the mystics and the skexies are total extremes so they would be extremely different from their original you know they would have strayed a very very long way from their kind of original characters and, and appearance but yeah and no, it's, it's an interesting point and I, I have to say whenever when they did transform i i actually really appreciate how eerie they are i think if they if they'd been really friendly and <laughs> it would have kind of struck a, a an odd note but again, I wish I had, um, which I did own one time, but I had to give it away when I was moving house, the original artwork from Brian Froud, because I imagine that must be absolutely fascinating to see all the original drawings and how this is supposed to be. And I imagine that there are elements of both um, creatures within the final you know, ultimate being that perhaps we don't necessarily appreciate unless you actually go back to the original drawings. So I think Brian Froud spent about five years preparing all of the background art and everything for this. And it's just, it's just amazing. Do you know, you would have loved this. I about, four or five years ago i went to a screening of the dark crystal um with wendy and brian froud who then talked about working on it afterwards you're right i would have loved that that sounds like (laughs) like one of my bucket list things (laughs) now i think we've kind of said as much as we can about um the dark crystal um so i think it's quite apposite that we're discussing this now as the Jim Henson Studios have actually got the go-ahead to make a prequel. Uh, It's going to be called uh, The Dark Crystal uh, Age of Resistance. I think that's what it's called. Um, And it's set in the Age of Division, which is several hundred years before um, Jen and Kira appear. Uh, It begins with the Great Conjunction. That's the bit that split the crystal. Uh, Hang on. Isn't that meant to be a thousand years ago? Yeah. So the, the Age of Division itself starts with the great conjunction mm-hmm. and the age of resistance story is set a couple of hundred years ago after that yes okay. um which given you said previously that augra was there um for the first conjunction makes me wonder if she's going to have a, a few guest roles or in it or even if she's going to have a really strong role that would be fantastic <gasps> young augra oh i wonder what young augra looks like she probably looks the same as old augra I think it's about augra <laughs> that tells me that she's never really looked any different <laughs> so i mean what do you think this kind of um prequel might cover i mean there's there's so much that it could cover what you know what would you be looking for in a prequel so i am not a big fan of turning like a really successful standalone film or book into a franchise um because i'm very wary of all you know that the, the the money with a capital m gets involved and then artistic integrity goes out the window um and especially for a film that was made well over 30 years ago but um i, I remember seeing a um competition for they were trying to find a writer for this this project um and this was it was quite a long time ago because it was before i got uh, my agent and so it was before i was published so i was still a completely 
well, I'm still pretty penniless, but, you know, even more penniless writer trying to get noticed. And um, and I was thinking of entering this competition, strangely enough. Uh, but then I got my manuscript picked up and, and, and I kind of forgot that it was happening. Um, so I was thinking that, you know, I, I think I read some of the guidelines and that they were saying that this is when they wanted to be set. So I and, and I think they also talked about the Gelfling civilization a lot and they wanted to explore the, the actual world of the Gelflings and their society in much greater detail because we really only get a very, very small flavor of it um, through through kind of Jen and Kira's visit to the ruins. Um, I think also... A bit more expansion of the history of the world because we see a lot of it, its beautiful environments, um, but we don't really know, we don't have a good idea of its geography and of which peoples live in which places. Um, and actually, yes, that's a good point. We only really meet the Gelflings and the Podlings and, and of course, the Mystics and the Skeksis who are the, the, the one people anyway. So I think it would be interesting to see more about um, the actual world and kind of the, the creatures that inhabit it. Absolutely. I mean, I think for me, the the storyline is probably going to be good because you have some really good writers out there these days. And we've got some fantastic series coming through Amazon, through Netflix, through all these different channels. I think one, sorry, the two things I would be wary of are what we discussed earlier, which is the puppets were amazing. And I think these days, for budgetary reasons, people will be so tempted to just put CGI in. And that would be such a shame because there is something so wonderful and real about all these puppets and all these environments. And I think if you lost that in favour of a cheap CGI series, I think that would just ruin whatever fantastic writing you had. Mm. And we were also talking earlier about the the charm is in the incidentals. It's in the little characters that you see. Um, it's all the little creatures that, that sort of interact with the main characters, whether it's, you know, something that's chasing them or trying to eat them or whatever. And again, those are, you know, are puppets. They're physical. Um, they're there. And if you either left them out or left them up to CGI, I think, again, that would be such a shame. Um, I'm thinking of when they redid the original Star Wars and they put in a load of CGI creatures. And I know that uh, George Lucas went on record kind of going, well, I really wanted all these creatures in in the beginning and I couldn't have them because the technology didn't exist to do them. I'm almost worried that now that technology exists to do these creatures, they'll go, well, we won't bother making them out of latex or foam or whatever it is they make them out of. I mean, those little creatures that rolled across the um, the Skeksis dinner table were basically made out of clockwork, like those little clockwork mice yourself, your cat. And, but it was just so brilliant and it's, it's really innovative and it, it had a real sort of presence on the screen. And I think if you did something like that in CGI, it just, it just wouldn't be the same. You wouldn't get the same sort of fur and flying and you wouldn't get the feeling that Skeksy had really picked up something real and alive and eaten it. Um, so if, as long as they've got those two rights, I think it would be, um, it would be a brilliant little show. I remember, I can't find the, the quote, but it was originally on IMDb. And someone had asked Frank Oz, would you make a sequel to The Dark Crystal? And Frank Oz's simple reply was, why? And I think he's kind of got the idea there that it's such a wonderful self-contained film that there isn't a lot to go on with afterwards. I mean, I know there is a there was a sequel that was supposed to be filmed. Um, I think there was various controversy over it. Like I think Jim Henson had le left a load of notes that were ignored by the studios and, you know, uh, at least one director walked away and went, well, nobody's taking account of these notes that the creator made. So I'm, I'm not going to do it. And I know that it eventually made it into comic book format, which I've got on my Kindle and I'm really looking forward to reading. But I kind of think Frank Oz was right in that. Why would you make a sequel? Because it's come to the end. It should be a time of peace. But I think a prequel has a lot to deal with because the, 
the age of division was about a thousand years or something before the crystal had previously broken. Um, and there's a lot that you can have in there. My only problem would be you all kind of know how it's going to end and it's going to end really badly. <laughs> all of the gelflings that you really love in the, the series are going to end up dead. And most of the pod people that you like are probably going to end up as slaves. And I think that will kind of give it a very dark tone. But will it be any darker than the original one where they're just in a, a terrible wasteland anyway? I know. I don't know. I, I I love this story so much, and it, it's such a um, it's a film that's so close to my heart. And like with Labyrinth, that I the idea of yeah, exactly them remaking Labyrinth. I mean, it's just I can't even comprehend. It's just no, you you don't do that. And Labyrinth is nothing without David Bowie. Um, but this this film, like, it's so. Um, I, I feel like people are going to come to it. We, we uh, exactly what we were talking about earlier. We've had forty or thirty years of of fantasy literature and films and and these the tropes that you know that you find in the kind of the dark crystal and this chosen one the way that they were presented so innocently um we don't have that anymore i feel like a lot of fantasy has lost its innocence in that regard that we you know we now i mean this podcast for example we we quite regularly tear into all the the new releases <laughs> try and extrapolate our own little kind of things from it and saying oh well, this is poor representation and that court so we're always we're very much more critical these days and we're very much more um jaded we've seen a lot of this genre in its commercial form so it makes me a little bit sad that uh we're bringing something from a kind of time of wonder into you know a, a time where you know it, i don't think it's going to it's not a, they're not going to be comfortable bedfellows i don't think that the way that we um digest fantasy and the way that we see it is, is very very different um so i'd be i'm, I'm a bit wary of, of it really um because i just love the original so much and i think it has something very special about it that probably can't be uh, recaptured the original Dark Crystal film holds a special place in our hearts, as it will do for many of our listeners. Whether your favourite aspect is the eccentric augra, the fantastic detail of the world of Thra, or the philosophical elements of this fantasy world, they all combine to make a truly cult film. The prequel has the potential to be as just as strange and as charming as the original, so long as those involved identify what made the Dark Crystal film truly great in the first place. Thank you for listening to this Lucy and Charlotte special edition of Breaking the Glass Slipper. See you next time when normal service is resumed.